first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey, just a heads up. This episode discusses suicide and mental health. A tragic loss illustrating just how big an emotional toll this pandemic is taking on healthcare workers. A couple weeks ago, a New York doctor died by suicide. Lorna Breen worked in the emergency room at a hospital hit hard by COVID-19. Her father telling the New York Times that the 49-year-old had contracted the virus but recuperated. He says the last time they spoke, she described the onslaught of patients dying before they could be taken out of ambulances. We don't know why Dr. Breen took her own life, but the case highlighted the emotional strain of being a healthcare worker during the pandemic. I think it shows that we need to take this very seriously. Jen Schwartz is a senior features editor at Scientific American. There's been such a focus on the physical consequences of COVID-19. And, you know, mental health is always less visible. Physicians, um, as a profession, have one of the highest suicide rates in the country already. And this just makes it so much more intense and exposes so many cracks. Today on the show, around the country, healthcare workers are having to make tough decisions with few resources. And the emotional toll of the pandemic will stay with them, even when the virus is gone. I'm Ariel Dimros. This is Reset. In March and April, Jen Schwartz spoke to healthcare workers across the country to try to get a sense of how the crisis was impacting their mental health. The timing is important because this was that sort of span of deep uncertainty where each day felt like um, it, it just went on forever and the changes from day to day were so extreme. One of the things I encountered a lot when talking to people who were not in hot spots at the time uh, was there was this sense of, you know, anticipatory stress. Um, They were watching what was happening in places like New York City and Italy, and they're looking at their hospitals, and a lot of them were sort of emptying out. So there were these sort of eerily quiet hospitals and doctors and nurses and therapists looking around saying, when is the, the tidal wave going to come? Is it going to hit us? In the places where that tidal wave had already arrived, the crisis led to workers having to make new and hard decisions. You know, one of the doctors I talked to, he talks about a COVID patient who was coding. You know, it's an emergency situation and you have to go in and revive the patient. And, you know, before they go into the room, everybody has to put on PPE. Right. 
but this is sort of new for them. And in, in many cases, and he looked around and some of the nurses or some of, you know, his other colleagues, maybe they were rushing and, and they wanted to get in there and save the patient and they have to make this call. Well, do we pause and make sure that we're, you know, properly protected before going in there? But what if, you know, those 10 extra seconds or whatever it is, what if that means that the patient dies? And and from what I was hearing, there were no clear answers to a lot of these questions. So, you know, even if the hospital itself wasn't being totally overrun, I think on a case-by-case basis, they were confronting these new questions all the time. And I, I think it's worth remembering, too, that in hospitals that were not totally overrun, and even those that are, there are still other patients in the hospital. And, you know, maybe you have someone who is dying of cancer and their family can't be visiting them either. That, I think, came up for a lot of doctors and nurses as well as, oh my gosh, what about all of these other people who are no longer getting care or can no longer be with their loved ones, you know, if they're dying um, and sort of balancing the focus on them with this sort of new paradigm in the hospital. And what about the hotspots? So the really difficult, super stressful situations are the ones that, you know, we've heard about in New York City where it's just endless COVID patients and people are dying, um, you know, these clinicians are are seeing like a rate of death that they don't typically see. And part of what makes it so difficult is that they're dealing with something that they don't know enough about yet. Mm -hmm. And so in most cases, the way that things work is there's like a clear protocol and a clear set of what needs to be done. But part of the problem is we just don't have that in this case. And in addition to that, what, what makes this potentially quite traumatic for these clinicians is that they're, of course, terrified about their own health. They're terrified about the safety of their their colleagues and their staff. And, of course, you know, they can't get away from this. Uh, so they have these super long, exhausting, upsetting, intense days at the hospital. And they go home and there's none of that release that they would typically have. So now they're terrified, of course, of bringing it to their families. Mm-hmm. So there's really no break for them. There's really no respite from what they're facing. Jen, that sounds absolutely exhausting. Yes, I think from what I hear, people in that situation are, you know, they're physically exhausted, they're mentally exhausted. You know, they really, I think when I was talking to a few of them, it was almost the first time someone had asked them to to pause and to reflect. Mm. Um, and a lot of them, you know, the, they were like, wow, you know, I haven't really done that yet because I've just been you know, getting through each day and trying to just stay on top of this and and keep going. Right. So I think for a lot of people, digesting this and and caring for themselves hasn't really been something they've been able to do yet. I know that you spoke to a lot of healthcare workers. From what I understand, some of those stories really had an impact on you. So can you tell me a few of those stories? What did you hear? So one woman I talked to is Ana Delgado, who is a nurse midwife in San Francisco. And and she talked about the way at first we were all, you know, oh, we're all in this together. This is affecting all of us. But I think as time has gone by, you know, there's been a lot more discussion of we are not all in this together. We are not all affected the same way. Right. You know, she works uh, at a at a clinic where 
a lot of patients, you know, they might be undocumented, you know, they might not have the same access to healthcare um, or, or private physicians or even the ability to isolate themselves within their own homes. And of course, she works with a lot of, you know, pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And so there's the way she was describing various situations of how her, her patients didn't have anywhere to, to go where they felt safe where you know they were they were terrified that they lost their jobs and they might not be able to pay their cell phone bill and that would mean that they're not able to connect to their healthcare providers to their doctors to their nurses and then they're stuck inside their homes and are afraid to go outside so i the, the discrepancies of the way that ana delgado was describing as as a as a clinician you get into this profession because you want to help people. You want to help communities and, and, and you want to make people healthy. But then you get into these systems and they are not always set up to do that. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of difficulty in providing high quality care and in getting everyone care, you know, who needs it to, to be able to treat them the way that you want to as a nurse. So another uh, person I spoke to um, was Patty Marshall Gilpin, who is a uh, respiratory therapy navigator in Kentucky. You know, she she works and sort of guides other respiratory therapists at the hospital. And as we've heard, respiratory therapists are they sort of have the most exposure to um, to this virus just be- because of their jobs. Um, they're the ones uh, operating the ventilators um, and-, and helping patients breathe. That's what they do. So she had described people have so much courage when they go in to intubate a patient or to give them CPR or whatever needs to be done, that everyone just goes right into the room and they do their job. There's no hesitation. But then after the procedure is over, her colleagues might come into her office and they close the door and they're venting and they're trying to process what just happened and were they exposed and, oh my gosh, now they have to go home to their families. And so she's supporting her colleagues in this way, but then she doesn't really have a place to, you know, to digest all of that either. Did you speak to any doctors who were wrestling with some of the decisions, the types of decisions that were made in Italy, where, where doctors had to decide who got a ventilator? You know, I I heard one doctor describe to me, you know, with even just with testing, um, when you have a patient come in and they, you know, might clearly have uh, have signs of COVID and you know, what if they can't get a test or what if the hospital can't admit them, but they don't have a safe place to go. And I think having to make that choice of sending someone away uh, when you know that they are going to be terrified of infecting others or of the uncertainty of will I get worse and there's no one to care for me. I think that is an issue that um, might not be as obvious as when you have, you know, uh, the scenario that we've heard of, oh, what if we'd run out of ventilators? What if, you know, you have to decide who lives and dies in an acute situation in a hospital? But what I heard a lot of are these other stories of 
um, of, of just that moral conflict of knowing that you're sending a patient into a situation that is really not so great for them, but you really have no other choice. After the break, healthcare professionals had already been suffering from the impact of that kind of decision-making, even before the pandemic. This is Reset. Wendy Dean is a psychiatrist and a former ER doctor. I asked her to describe the overall mental health of U.S. healthcare professionals before the pandemic. Yeah, it was not good. Roughly half of physicians in a survey that was done in late 2019 admitted to at least one symptom of burnout. Hmm. The nursing surveys that have been done show roughly 40% acknowledge one symptom of burnout. Could you define burnout for me? It really is just a cluster of symptoms. And the first symptom is emotional exhaustion. The second is a feeling of being ineffective. Mm -hmm. And the third is a sense of kind of being removed from other people or relationships or what's called depersonalization. So it was already a distressed community with a lot of the workforce that had strained relationships with the organizations they were working for. That distress is what prompted Wendy to co-found a nonprofit in 2018 that advocates for the mental health of healthcare professionals, along with Dr. Simon G. Talbot. When I talk to physicians, when Dr. Talbot and I talk to physicians and we describe burnout, they will say, uh, if I have to say what is causing my distress, if, if it's a yes or no with burnout, then yes. But actually what really aligns more closely to what they're experiencing is something called moral injury. Moral injury is a concept that was first described with combat veterans. And it's this idea that something you have done has transgressed deeply held moral beliefs. You have acted in such a way, failed to prevent an action, or been witness to something that really hits at your moral core. For physicians, that deeply held moral belief is the oath that we took to put our patients always as a priority. And so when we can't get them the care that they need, that is deeply painful to us. The difference between, for example, trauma and moral injury can be a fine line, but it's a very distinct difference. So right now, when someone watches a patient with COVID who dies alone or without family, that's a traumatic experience. That, that is painful to watch. Mm -hmm. When you watch that happen, when you watch that patient die alone because you do not have sufficient PPE to go in and hold their hand, that is a moral injury because you are being asked to choose between your own safety and the comfort of your patient, your own needs and your patient's needs. So it, it's still something that's traumatic, but it's also something that goes entirely against your mission, your purpose in life, right? Correct. And, and this is, it's interesting, the way that 
the concept evolved originally with, with combat veterans was that some clinicians were noticing that combat veterans that had been diagnosed with PTSD weren't getting better with standard treatments. And they were struggling to understand why that was true. And what they realized was that there was another layer to this complex trauma that they had experienced. And that was this sense that they had betrayed their moral core. And it had kind of left them unmoored from their moral compass. And that until they recalibrated that or acknowledged it and dealt with it, they didn't get better. And it's not that I don't think burnout exists. I think burnout does exist. But I don't think it's the description of the majority of distress that people are feeling. Wendy, there are a lot of difficult decisions that doctors and nurses and therapists have to make right now because of the pandemic. But what you're saying is that this isn't new. Healthcare professionals have been dealing with moral injury for a while. So how did we get here? Over the past 40 years or so, as efforts to contain costs have become more and more prominent, there's been a bigger divide between the clinical side of medicine and the business side of medicine. And those two sides of medicine, they work in concert to keep the machinery alive, to keep organizations solvent. But oftentimes, the goals of the two sides of medicine can be in conflict because what uh, patients need and what clinicians need for their patients can hit at the bottom line. I can take the time I need to see my patient and explain a complicated disease process with them and educate them about how to take care of that. Or I could keep to the productivity metrics that I have been assigned to make sure I see enough patient volume every day. Does that end up being the source of this moral injury? It is. The tension between the financial side of healthcare and the clinical side of healthcare, the intersection between those two is where moral injury happens. Challenges with uh, prior authorization from insurance companies, distraction from the electronic health record when they were trying to take care of patients, what's called leakage constraints, where physicians were asked not to refer outside of their own healthcare system. Mm. Each one of them seems like a minor detail, but when you add them up day after day, week after week, month after month, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Right, because what physicians find themselves having to do is, instead of referring a patient to the best possible expert for uh, their specific condition, they might find themselves referring uh, their patient to somebody that also works for the same company, right? That's what you're saying through this referral example. Correct. And another example is for a physician who knows that their patient needs a certain chemotherapy drug, but the insurance company won't authorize it. So those were the kinds of, of injuries that physicians were experiencing before the pandemic. How, how has that changed now because of COVID-19 and all these patients coming in? How it impacted physicians with respect to COVID is, an example there is, Physicians were saying, we need to stop elective surgeries so that we can serve PPE, so that I can keep myself safe, so that I can keep my patients safe. Hospital administrators were saying, no, no, we actually need to keep that rolling because that is our lifeblood. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until it was very clear 
that the pandemic was you know, right at their front door when they finally agreed to stop. That was the first incidence of moral injury with the physician saying, I'm worried that my organization is not going to keep me safe and I'm going to have to make these difficult decisions about my patient's comfort versus my safety. Then there's the next overlay of, I'm also going to have to make very difficult decisions about resource allocation that I'm not practiced in doing because it is an anathema in in U.S. medicine to ration care. And then there's a third layer, which is starting right now, which is as organizations start to get back to elective procedures and getting back to seeing patients who aren't urgent or emergent, there's a challenge of how do we take care of the the folks who are on the front lines doing it in in a way that's safe enough that they don't get overwhelmed again because you opened up too soon or you didn't do it in a careful way. So with everything that you just said in mind, what kind of impact do you think the pandemic will have on physicians, on healthcare providers, broadly speaking, in the long term? If organizations don't see this as a crisis that requires them to recommit to the well-being of their workforce and to reconsider some of the financial framework of healthcare, and, and it's not just organizations, this may need to be a broader conversation, but how we incentivize healthcare, how we reimburse it, and what that means for the well-being of the workforce, and for patients, actually. Unless we reconsider those things, I worry that we are going to have a cohort of, of physicians and other healthcare workers who decide this just is not worth it. And if organizations and government agencies can't work together to find ways to create a different environment, in healthcare. I think the physician shortage that we're already facing in 2030 is going to be much worse. And we came into this pandemic with a nursing shortage. Mm-hmm. We're going to leave it with a bigger one if we're not attending to some of these issues. So if things are this bad, what can we do about it? I think that is an excellent question. And There are many ways that we can provide support for physicians that will make some of the impact easier. So, for example, having very clear guidelines with how those decisions about constrained resources are made. Having a committee that helps to make the decisions about who might be appropriate for a ventilator or who might not. Making sure that we're doing everything possible to get the equipment and the staffing that are required to take care of patients to the best of our ability. And also finding ways to help physicians recognize that as much as they want to be perfect, as much as they want to rescue everyone, as much as what they want to be the heroes that the public sees them as, they are doing the best they can against an unknown enemy that nobody knows how to fight. You know, it's interesting that you said that that their physicians are not heroes. I've actually heard a lot of people say things recently like healthcare providers are superheroes or saying things like, you know, uh, doctors are in a war zone right now and they're soldiering on. What do you think about comparing clinicians to soldiers or superheroes? I think it's absolutely noble of the public to see 
healthcare providers like that, to see, see the clinician workforce as heroes, because they do have a level of courage that I think a lot of people really find it hard to imagine. At the same time, I worry that it puts clinicians at risk of further exploitation because they'll go in no matter what. Right. And what that hero worship does not allow physicians to do is to take off the cape and to be human and to experience the human emotions that really are necessary to acknowledge in the midst of this crisis. And I would like to think that while they have their PPE on, you know, that's their superhero cape. But when they take that off, they get to be a human, they get to be vulnerable, they get to need help as well. Wendy Dean is a psychiatrist and the president and co-founder of Moral Injury of Healthcare. What we talked about on the show today is hard stuff. So if you or someone you know is considering self-harm, please seek help through the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This is Reset. And I'm Ariel Duemras. But you don't have to say it that way. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Will Reed and Skylar Swenson produce the show. Amy Drozdowska is our editor. Our audio engineer is Eric Gomez. Golda Arthur is our executive producer. Liz Kelly Nelson is the editorial director of Vox Podcasts. The mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme music, and we're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back on Tuesday. Later, nerds.